buy when I'm at his table, otherwise you won't get that discount. <laughs> uh, the brethren were praying before the service. Two prayers concerned me. <laughs> One was several of the men prayed that we would all stay awake. So <laughs> I, I don't know whether they were including me in that or not, but I'll do my part if you'll do yours. The other prayer that concerned me seemed to contradict that, that other prayer. One of the bread, this is true, one of the brethren prayed that the Lord would bring to my mind everything I studied and help me to deliver it all. <laughs> I think, I'm thinking, <laughs> I, think, I think we're going to, we, we might be here for a while. <laughs> and we'll probably for sure go to sleep. So I, I'm not sure how we're supposed to take all of that. <laughs> Yes, and I think what we better do is give Brother Mitchell the bell. The bell do you have it? No, I Okay, well, it's gone. But anyway, we'll try to ring that now and then. <laughs> uh, anyway. Book of Isaiah in chapter 6 this afternoon. <clears throat> Book of Isaiah in chapter 6. We're looking at the throne scenes of God. We come to the one in Isaiah 6, and I have to confess, I'm not sure exactly what the Lord is doing today in our lives. Um, I spoke on Micaiah, just being faithful, um, valiant for the truth. Brother uh, Pastor Mitchell came and spoke Jeremiah, Lamentations, just same same kind of not exactly the same thought, but along the same line, service to the Lord and facing difficulties and just being faithful. And uh, Isaiah 6 is somewhat along the same line of a man's call in light of what he has seen about God. And I don't, I don't know how that's fitting. Tomorrow, of course, my sermons will be off in a different direction, but I don't know. I just throw that out so that we're mindful of these things. And <clears throat> obviously the Lord is doing something. Brother and I, Wally and I were talking that these are perilous times. It just seems the last three or four months, five months, I mean, parliament and votes and all kinds of things coming up. And um, we don't know what the future holds either. So we no doubt need this kind of encouragement apparently. So this afternoon, we're going to be looking in Isaiah chapter 6. I want to entitle the message, um, Cleansing That Brought Commissioning. I think that's what I have on the sheet there. Um, better look make sure i got the right sermon today. What, what have I got? Cleansing That Allows for Commissioning. That's right, I have a different title on my notes. Cleansing That Allows for Commissioning from Isaiah chapter 6. Let's pray this morning, this afternoon, commit our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity of gathering this afternoon, and Lord, we are but dust, we are frail, and our spirits are willing, we really want to listen and learn, but Father, we are weary, it is the afternoon, and it's coming to the end of the day, and um, you know these things, and so we do pray that you'd give us a measure of grace and uh, minister to us today. Uh, do instruct us, and in light of all that's going on, use the messages today to just solidify in our hearts a faithfulness and a consistency. 
We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6. This uh, passage is not unfamiliar to us, but let me read again from verse number 1 down to uh, roughly about verse number 9. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? How long should I keep up this kind of ministry? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the homes or the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there's, there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return and shall be eaten as a teal and an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. In the year that King Uzziah died... That year was the year 739 or 740 B.C. For 52 years, Uzziah has been king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And generally, he has been a good king and has followed the ways of the Lord. In fact, 2 Kings 15.3 states that during his reign, quote, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. But in the year of his death, God reconfirmed to Isaiah his call to the prophetic ministry and to preach to the people the holy demands of God. Now Isaiah has been preaching for some time. We're six chapters into the book before his call is reconfirmed. He's been preaching, if I could put it this way, he's been preaching for five chapters. But when we reach chapter 6, God reconfirms this man's call in a most remarkable way. And it's, of course, the circumstances of that call, this throne scene, that bring us to this passage this afternoon. 
You're aware, though, that in Scripture, the circumstances of a man's call may vary from man to man. They're not always the same. And so it is with Isaiah, except that his call or the reconfirmation of it seems to be somewhat unique. And we've noted that, unlike really the confirmation that any other man received. And therefore, I would say that Isaiah's call is exemplary in nature for the rest of us. That call involves seeing God sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. And I think in light of what we have here, and the kind of ministry that Isaiah is being called into in verses 8 and following, that there's probably a twofold purpose for the kind of confirmation of his call that Isaiah received, this throne scene. Number one, it was given to assure Isaiah that in spite of the sin and sinfulness of his culture, remember we're talking about a holy God, verse 3, who is the sovereign. He's not the creator. He's not the lawgiver. He's not the judge. Here, he's the holy sovereign. And it's given to Isaiah to assure him in the first place that in spite of sin and the sinfulness of his culture, chapters 1 to 5, that that sin was not sitting on the throne. That in spite of what Parliament is talking about and in spite of the vote that's coming up, sin doesn't reign. There is on the throne who sets up and brings down, Daniel 2, there is on the throne a holy sovereign who sits on that throne. And here God appears to Isaiah as that, this man who's going to go out and to minister into a culture like that. And as a result of that, that man can become despondent. As a result of that, that man can become discouraged. He works with people in their lives. He counsels them. He tries to help them. Sin seems to have such bond or such a, 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 a captive nature over people like that. Why, worse yet for the preacher in a culture like that where he ministers, a preacher can actually become very cynical. I think that's a great difficulty for pastors, maybe more than even discouragement or despondency. They can actually become very cynical regarding these things. And so God assures this man that sin doesn't sit on the throne. That is not what is reigning. You look around you, it appears that it is, but that's not the case. There is a holy sovereign on the throne. And as God commissions this man to this, gospel, to this prophetic ministry, he also is given this vision to assure him that in spite of the fact that he was as sinful as the people to whom he was ministering. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Though he too was as sinful, in a sense, as the people that he ministered to, yet through cleansing, God could actually use him. And so here is this vision. Not the creator the omnipotent creator, not the gracious and good lawgiver, not the righteous judge, 
But here is the Holy Sovereign sitting upon his throne and calling this man into ministry. Here's a vision that allows for cleansing and allows for commissioning. Now, the place to begin on our understanding of this vision of God and Isaiah's commissioning for ministry is obviously begin in verses 1 through 7 where we have Isaiah's cleansing for service. I'm going to try to move through this a little bit more hurriedly than even what I have in my notes so we can move along this afternoon. But that cleansing for service has two parts to it. In verses 1 through 4, there's an exalted view of our God. And in verses 5 and 7, there's a personal consciousness of one's own depravity. Note in verses 1 through 4, you can look at that as, as I talk. You can just run your eyes down through there. I won't read that again. But here is the exalted view of God on his throne, the enthroned God. Now, let me begin by, before making comments on that, folks, let me begin by saying that what you see in verses 5 through 7, that cleansing, that cleansing of Isaiah, that Isaiah, verses 5 through 7, folks, never occur apart from an experience like that in verses 1 to 4. That which brings cleansing for service begins with becoming acquainted with no one less than the Lord himself. None of us see the need for purifying by comparing ourselves with other people. None of us see the need for purifying by even considering our own heart, which is desperately wicked and deceitful and won't even tell us the depth of its own depravity. The only way we really come to terms that we need purifying is actually by becoming acquainted with God and seeing the Lord himself. And when that happens, we see the need for purifying. What did Isaiah see that brought about those events in verses 5 through 7? And again, you'll have to use your imagination a little bit. We're not going to spend as much time here as we did in Revelation 4, but you'll have to engage your imagination a little bit. The first thing, as I've pointed out, the first thing that Isaiah saw was the enthroned Lord. That's in verse number 1. I'm not going to take the time this morning to explain that or talk about that. Some of you already are thinking of John chapter 12, where Christ himself identifies him with this passage. And it's actually he that's sitting on the throne. But Isaiah sees the enthroned Lord, and three things in particular capture his attention in verse 1, 2, well, verses 1 and 2. Number one, he saw that the Lord was sitting on a throne, the seat of authority and power. And the particular thing he sees about this is that the Lord is high and lifted up, as Pastor Mitchell brought out to us yesterday. And here is God in his exalted position, elevated and lofty, majestic and grand, surpassing all temporal or human imagination. And any time we think of God, we're to think of God in these terms. Not in the terms of sometimes society puts out there or some of the titles you hear or you read on the books that come in the advertisement from that bookstore, the one you're thinking of. <laughs> and they brought God down. This is how we are to envision God. Second thing that Isaiah sees is that his train, the train of the Lord's robe, filled the temple. Now, when I was a boy, I couldn't figure that out. The only train I knew was the one that took the grain from the elevator to the place where they made it into flour. I thought the 
I didn't know the Lord had trains. <laughs> but that's not talking about the, the, choo-choo, the choo-choo train, okay? I'm just trying to throw a few things out to keep us together today so that prayer is answered, okay? <laughs> so, that, so that we all stay awake, okay? So I'll, do, I'll try to do a little bit of the, that this afternoon, okay? Since I don't have the bell and can ring it. I can. Uh, I see that brightened us up, so that's good, okay? We're all back together again. So the Lord's train filled the temple, the train of his robe. And we're somewhat, somewhat familiar with that. Often in a wedding ceremony or at the coronation of some monarch, the train of the gown or robe is full and long in order to highlight the preeminence of the individual. In fact, sometimes it is so long and so great that they actually have to have attendants on the side of it, you know, three or four, you know, two or three on each side of it to carry just the robe. And it's designed to underscore the loftiness and the majesty here of the one on the throne. He is robed in splendor. He's majestic and grand, elevated, filled with glory. And the third thing Isaiah sees, of course, is in verse number 5, that the temple was filled with smoke. And possibly you remember that when the Lord met with Moses on Mount Sinai, that the mount, it says, was altogether on smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, Exodus 19:18. And the smoke symbol is symbolic of God's presence. It created an awe and reverence in the beholder. So here is what Isaiah is seeing. Now, this is unique for Isaiah, because according to chapter 1, verse 1, Isaiah has been in palaces and before kings prior to this occasion. He's familiar with splendor and majesty and grandeur. He served under kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, 1-1 tells us. He had seen the grandeur and splendor of thrones and palaces. He was familiar with kingly vestures and robes. But he has never seen anything like this. Never before when he has seen kings in this position has he ever fallen on his knees and cried out, Woe is me, I'm a sinful man. But this vision strikes him down, brings him low. Here is the king, the Lord of hosts. And again, it reminds us that any time we think of God or conceive of him in our minds, we need to conceive of him as Isaiah saw him. We don't need the heavenly jokes. We don't need St. Peter jokes at the gate of heaven. We need to see God as he really is. Here, the majestic, holy sovereign. This is what Isaiah saw. But folks, would you note in verse 3 and verse 4 what he heard and that added to what he saw. We are people of senses. We have our sight, we have our hearing, we have our taste, we have our touch. God has made us that way. And any teacher understands that the more of the senses you can engage, the more opportunity there is for the instruction to be imparted and to be received. And so God now engages another one of Isaiah's senses, not just his sight, but now his hearing. What does Isaiah hear? Verse 2, above that throne stood these seraphim. Each of them had six wings, with twain they covered their face, 
that may have indicated reverence. We don't know, but it could have been. With two of those, they covered their feet. They may, that may indicate humility or selfless service. With two of those, they did fly. And by the way, the words covered and covered and fly are verbs of continuous motion. It wasn't just that those angels were standing there like statues and they just kept... These, these are words of continuous motion. They're verbs. They're action words. And the grammar is that, they're, the, that you know, this is constantly going on. Somewhat like we saw the other day where these living creatures are hovering. There's motion there that's going around. It's taking place. But what strikes Isaiah is what he hears in verse 3. Here are these seraphims, and one cried unto another. Here they are positioned around the throne, and one cries, Holy, 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 holy. And the seraphims are calling back and forth to one another this key attribute of God. There's this praise and song crying to one another. And the attribute of God which Isaiah hears them extolling is the holiness of God. Now, many of us are familiar with what that is, but I don't want to take anything for granted, and so I'm just going to talk for just a moment about what, these, what Isaiah was hearing and what these seraphim were extolling. Because a lot of times when we think of holiness, we typically think that holiness is synonymous with sinfulness. And when people speak of God as being holy, they typically think that people are talking about God being morally and morally pure or sinless. And it is true that holiness includes God's moral perfection or that he is sinless. But it actually, as many of you know, means more than that. Both the Hebrew and Greek words have as their basic meaning the idea of separateness or distinctiveness. We might use another word that someone once suggested to me. Separate, distinct. How about the word unique? Now, the word unique doesn't mean much to us today because everything seems to be unique in our society. It's like the word classic. Every book that comes out is a classic book. But if every book is a classic book, there are no classic books. And we use the word unique like that as well. But that's really what this term means. It refers to something is unique, folks, when it's the only one of its kind. Now think about God. Something is unique when it's the only one of its kind. It is not only distinct and separate from everything else. You know, I, I, am, I am distinct and separate from that or I am distinct and separate from you, but I'm not unique. I mean, I'm just like you. So the term doesn't just refer to being separate and distinct, but also the fact that uh, this personage is unique. The only one in a category. Everything else is in this category, God is unique, and he's in a category all separate by himself. Or as someone I heard once, they, they once illustrated it this way. They said, quote, 
It is not correct to think of God as being the ultimate being in a scale of living beings. One-celled animals, or one-celled creatures, then you've got animals, then you maybe got fish and fowl, then you have man, then you have angels, and then you have God, and he's over everything. That's not the way to think of this. That's not what this term means. The term means you've got everything in this category, one-celled, animals, fish, fowl, people, angels. Those are all living, created beings, but you've got God over here all by himself, and he was never created, and he's eternal, and he's omnipotent, and he's omniscient, and he's omnipresent. He's in a category all by himself, and he is as exalted over an angel as he is over a caterpillar. He's as unique over an angel as he is over a caterpillar. They're all in this category. God's in a category all by himself. He's unique. He is holy. Now, of course, part of that, as you can understand, is the fact that he's also sinless. There's a moral perfection that's there as well, as well as many other things. But he is unique. He's separate. He's in a category all by himself. And folks, that is what these seraphims are chanting back and forth to one another. Holy, 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 holy. And they're calling back and forth to one another as if they have this united conviction about God. That he is holy and they're urging each other on in their praise of God with this thought. And we can somewhat relate to that when we get into service and the singing is good and everyone is singing. We just, I mean, it's like it urges us on to lift our voice up. And so it is with these angels, these angelic creatures that are here. Now, this is what Isaiah hears and what impresses him. In fact, this sound, this, this call back and forth to one another, holiness, folks, is so moving that even the doorposts tremble at the voice of these beings. Look at that in verse 4. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Now that may be, I talked about the smoke earlier, that may be God. Some have also taken it that maybe the smoke is from these seraphim because literally the term seraphim refers to burning ones. Maybe from them as well. You'll just you sort that out yourself. Um, but here they are, holy, and then the whole earth is full of his glory. And we'll leave that till tomorrow night. But folks, here's what Isaiah hears and what he sees. This majestic, grand, splendid, holy, sovereign on the throne. And Isaiah saw it in heaven. But here upon the earth, would you note that his, whole earth, his glory is, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And folks, we can see his glory around us as well. Again, we'll note that tomorrow night. But when a man sees God like this, how does it leave such a man? By looking at many contemporary groups today, it doesn't leave, it, you know, I mean, you know, they're before God and supposedly before a holy God and moving and gyrating and jumping and clapping and dancing and running and 
How does it leave a person when they really see God like this? Well, what it does for a man is bring to an individual a personal consciousness of their own depravity, verses 5 to 7. Then said I, see the word then? Then said I, after he had seen this and heard this, then said I, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes, see that? Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is what's being portrayed here. The King, the Sovereign, the Holy One, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched my lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. In light of seeing God, Isaiah comes to a new understanding of his need and the need of the people around him. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, folks, what is significant about this consciousness and confession by Isaiah is that it reveals that a man who is going to minister not only needs cleanse from sin so that he's a fit vessel for God's use, but the gifts he is going to use for that ministry also need to be sanctified and set apart for God. God is a holy God. He's separate and unique. And he calls men into the ministry. And yes, they not only need to be cleansed from sin, but the instruments of their usage are, need also to be made holy, set apart. Go all the way back to Leviticus and Numbers and you read of those things. And the priests. And so here's God cleansing this man. But it begins in verse 5 with Isaiah's confession. Woe is me. Woe, here is a term that refers to personal calamity and disaster. How often have we gone to confess sin before God and really felt a personal calamity and disaster in our life? Isaiah is filled with an overwhelming conviction of his own sin and worthlessness. He senses his own sin and uselessness before God. And then he adds, I'm undone, a word that means cut off or silenced. Silenced. God's calling me to minister the word, but when I consider myself, I'm just, I'm just dumb. I am silenced. What could I say? My lips are as sinful as those around us. My heart is just as depraved. My thoughts are just as bad as the guy next door who comes to me for counsel. I've got the same kind of flesh. It's the same devil that tempts me. I'm cut off. I'm silenced. And here's the picture of a man who senses his own ruination and doom. This is, this is a Peter who gets down in a boat full of fish, slimy, oily, gooey fish, and he falls on his knees before a holy God, and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. That's what happens when people really get a vision of God and his glory and his holiness and his deity. And Isaiah felt this way because he really was, as he identifies it, a man of unclean lips. Why was Isaiah preoccupied with his lips? Why didn't he say, I'm a, I'm a man of a sinful heart? 
or hands or eyes. Or eyes, I mean, he just saw the Lord. He just, he just saw the Lord. Why didn't he identify his eyes? That seems to be what might have struck me. Well, possibly, I don't think it's this. I throw this out in case your mind is engaged at the moment. It may be that he's referring to his entire personality by referring to his lips. Because you remember in James chapter 3, verse 2, that does teach that if a man keeps his lips, he keeps his whole life and is a perfect man. Maybe that's the reason. I don't think so. But I throw that out in case you think it is. But I think Isaiah folks might also be referring to his lips because his ministry as a preacher consisted in the use of his tongue and his lips. His lips and mouth are what he uses most. And here's a man. Remember what it says in James? It talks about that. You know, don't desire to be a teacher because in a multitude of words there want of not sin. His lips and mouth are what he uses most. And here's a man who realizes how undedicated those things are for preaching the truths of God. They become unclean like the culture he lives in and must minister to. And he feels unqualified because of their sinfulness. The seraphim cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. But how can I deliver that message to people who need it when I've got unclean lips? I'm not holy like those seraphim at all. Why doesn't God send the angels to preach the gospel? Oh. You know why Isaiah settled on his lips and spoke of them? And why, though they be unclean, he can minister the holy gospel to them? Well, he can only do that and have that kind of ministry if God himself will do something for him. And that's what you find in verses 6 and 7. You've got God's provision of this cleansing. We read of that. Then flew one of the seraphim, had a live coal, <clears throat> verse 7, laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity. See, that's what Isaiah said in verse 6 or verse 5. I've got unclean lips. Thy iniquity is taken away. Thy sin is purged. If a man confesses like that in verse 5, then God can do what he does in verses 6 and 7. And that angel, no doubt under the command of God, flies to the altar, takes a burning coal off of it, a burning coal that's the result of the sacrifice being made there. And he touches that part of Isaiah which is unclean and which will hinder his youthfulness, usefulness in ministry. Here is God, folks. Here is God taking, in this case, the initiative to do the cleansing. Isaiah apparently feels so undone that he doesn't even cry to the Lord to do anything for him. He confesses his sin. But it's God who shows the initiative then of his own accord, extending mercy and providing cleansing and complete healing. And of course, the significance is that not only is sin forgiven, but whatever obstacle existed for the communication of God's message arising out of Isaiah's own consciousness of sin or unworthiness. And sometimes when we preach, our own consciousness of our own sin can come before us. 
That obstacle is now taken away. How often the preacher may stand in the pulpit and the devil remind him of his own sinfulness. But with confession, the obstacle is taken away. And Isaiah is now going to be commissioned to preach the word, and any consciousness of guilt over one's sinfulness should no longer be a hindrance. The fact is that every minister of the gospel knows of his own unworthiness. He not only dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips, but he too is such a man. He too wrestles with sin. He too struggles with the flesh. He too yields to the temptations of the devil. Like Moses, he too becomes angry. And like the disciples, he too senses how great he is. Greater than any of the other preachers who were there. (laughs) If the twelve disciples and the pillars of the church felt that way, who are we to say, doesn't bother me. I never worry about the other preachers and how great I am. Woe be to me. <laughs> we need to get low. You know, pride would hold a man back and say, I'm unworthy. But cleansing sets a man free. And this is true for all of the Lord's people. If you are bewailing your tongue or your eyes, or what your hands have done, or where your feet have strayed, God can cleanse all of that and use you in service for him. Even if you have denied Christ like Peter, did you know that Christ can even forgive that and recommission for service? I mean, there's this classic, you don't need to turn there, you know the passage, folks. There is this classic illustration of this from the life of Paul. Listen, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me for the account of me faithful putting me into the ministry who is before a blasphemer and a persecutor and an injurious man. You know what that was like in Acts. Paul hunted down Christ's people and threw him in prison and consented to the stoning of Stephen. How could you preach after that? How could you stand up in the Jerusalem church and there's the widow and she's a widow because you put her husband to death? How could you stand with a conscience like that? Oh, that it would condemn you. Well, there's been cleansing. The Lord can cleanse people of those kinds of things. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. There's the hope of every sinful man. Now, I just throw it out in case someone's listening or you are thinking. Well, I didn't mean it the way I think you took it, (laughs) okay? I think we're all awake, yes, I didn't mean that. I'm just thinking for those who are engaging things, yes, there is, for instance, a man that has been immoral and there are restrictions placed, for instance, upon the ministry and those things. I'm, I'm well aware of that. We're just not going in that direction. I just want to put that out in case you're thinking. But the fact is that God can cleanse I mean, here's a Jonah. I don't know. I can't think of anyone much worse in the Bible than Peter who denied the Lord. Imagine that on the night when Christ needed a friend. At the very time. And he looked out the window and he needed some encouragement. And there's Peter saying, I don't even know him. 
And yet the Lord recommissioned him and said, look, Peter, would you, would you just go feed my sheep for me? God can do that. And the point of this vision of a holy God who cleanses from sin is to separate this man and to call him to the unique position of being a voice for God. I think that's the main thing. It does assure him that in a sinful society, the people he's going to minister to, that God is the sovereign. But every Sunday school teacher needs this. Every youth group worker, every protein worker needs this. Every parent needs this. I mean, I'm a parent. You know, and four children, and here you, I mean, they're all older now, thankfully. Because <laughs> now we got grandchildren. <laughs> you know what it's like as a parent to have you take your child in the bedroom and sit down and talk with them, and while you're talking to them about their own sinfulness and how they got in a fight with their sister, you're thinking about what you said to your husband when you walked out the door to work this morning. <laughs> you're thinking, who am I to discipline these kids? Well, there's cleansing with the Lord. Every, every parent, every believer can claim this passage, that when you stand and try to fulfill the ministry God has given to you as a believer in your life, there's cleansing with God. And God can take that and God can use that. It's exactly the way it is. So, that brings us in secondly to Isaiah's commissioning for ministry. And I'm going to tell you something. If you've got the kind of ministry that Isaiah had, you're going to need this cleansing. Because if you don't, you'll become cynical with the people you minister to. You really will. You get a, you get a book on preaching that happens to address this. And preachers and pastors and leaders and parents, Sunday school teachers can become very, very cynical when they minister to people whose heart is hard. Notice Isaiah's commissioning for ministry, verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Now here's what Isaiah is supposed to tell them. Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See indeed and perceive not. And then the Lord says to Isaiah, make the heart of these people fat, make their ears heavy, shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Here's Isaiah's commissioning for ministry. Of course, verse 8 gives us the occasion of Isaiah's commissioning. Isaiah's commissioning begins with the Lord's inquiry, who can I send and who will go for us? Now, God doesn't always do that commissioning and that call that way. Sometimes God actually lays a strong hand of constraint on people. Think of Jeremiah, before you were born, I formed thee. Or think of Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. Or think of John the Baptist, he was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. In other words, sometimes God has a way of constraining people if they seem to want to resist his call. But he doesn't always work that way. He doesn't always coerce his spokesman, so to speak. That's probably not a choice word, but he doesn't always constrain people. Sometimes he actually just issues an inquiry. Is there anyone out there who's willing to go for me? 
And in this case, Isaiah's recommissioning is in response to his volunteering. Isaiah answers the Lord's inquiry, Lord, hear my, send me, behold me. Hey, Lord, consider me, I'll go. And as a result of Isaiah's volunteering, the Lord calls this man into ministry. You know what's interesting, folks, is this is actually the way it is with people who have become confident that they're forgiven. The first thing they want to do is talk about it and tell people. And that happens to men who are called to preach. When they're confident that all of their sin is taken care of, they want to preach that to other people. They really do. They know they're unclean, but they also know that they've been cleansed, and they want to preach that to other people so they too can know the joy of sins forgiven. And here's the, the occasion of Isaiah's commissioning. He's been cleansed. He wants to be able to bring other people to the Lord for the same cleansing. But then it's in I, chapter, or verses 9 through 13. We're not going to look at all of this extensively, but in verses 9 through 15, there's the nature of this man's ministry. And I'm departing just for a moment from the cleansing because we're focusing on the commissioning now. But the cleansing is going to allow for this kind of commissioning and this man's faithfulness in this kind of ministry. The nature of his ministry. Folks, when a man responds to God's call to preach, he's not left up to his own devisings as to the nature of his ministry. It is not up to him to craft a message to preach, to come up with something to say, or to design a ministry to carry out. Those things are chosen and ordained by God, and so it was with Isaiah. And in verse number 9, we are given his message, and in verse number 10, we're given his task. Verse number 9, here's his message. Go and tell this people. And then we've got a comment in our text. Because it's trying to indicate to us, here is what Isaiah is to tell people. It sounds funny to us. Maybe I shouldn't say funny. It sounds odd to us. But this is what he's to tell people. It's as if Isaiah stood here and he looked at us and he said to all of us, Now hear, but don't understand. And see, but I don't want any of you out there to perceive. Now, this will put that into perspective a little bit. Both hear and see are actually, grammatically, they're actually commands. Isaiah, God tells Isaiah, Isaiah wants you to stand before the people and actually command them to hear, but don't understand. I'm commanding you to hear, and I'm also commanding you not to understand. I'm commanding you to see, but I'm also commanding you not to perceive. Don't do either one of those. Listen to what I'm saying, but I don't want you to get the point of it. No pastor would stay in the pulpit long. The deacons would have him in there and say, look, brother, we love you to death. But, you know, you can imagine that. A preacher standing up and saying, listen, I want to talk today about Isaiah 6, but I don't want you to understand anything I say. <laughs> Sometimes that happens anyway, <laughs> by default. You know, you, you think, I wonder what that was all about, you know? Sometimes the preacher goes home. This is one of those moments where I'm trying to get everybody back with me. Sometimes the preacher goes home and he wonders, what did I say today, <laughs> you know? It's like they say, if there's, a, if there's a fog in the pulpit, there's bound to be a mist in the pew. So 
But you can imagine that. Folks, really, that is what God's telling him. I want you to go and tell people, look, listen to what I say, but I don't want you to perceive what I'm talking about. So let me give a point of clarification for that. Well, actually, let's, let's let verse 10 give us the clarification. If you understand Isaiah's task, you'll understand why he had that kind of message. Here's his task. And it begins with the word make. See that word make? Now that's an action word, make. Ladies, make something in the kitchen. The husband goes out to the garage on his day off and he makes something out of the timber that's there. This word make is a word that refers to a duty or a task. That's the reason I'm calling this Isaiah's task, because that's what the word make means. And he is to make the people, if he's to mold them in a sense in three ways. Number one, make the heart of the people fat. Make the heart of the people calloused and insensitive so that that heart cannot perceive the message. Number two, make their ears heavy, make their ears dull or unresponsive to the Lord's direction. And preach and make their eyes shut, put a veil over their eyes, smear their eyes with paste so they can't see and attend to the truth. And the reason, folks, Isaiah is to preach this way is so they can't see and hear and understand. See that at the end of the verse? Isaiah is to preach this way, lest they see and hear and understand and convert and be healed. Now that really sounds strange to us. I thought when a preacher stood in the pulpit and delivered the truth, the point was to give people the truth so they could repent and respond. Not on this occasion. That sounds really strange to us, doesn't it? The people in verse 9 are being commanded to do the very thing that will bring about their ruin. And Isaiah is to preach in such a way so that people don't understand the truth and end up repenting and be healed. Is that really the message? You know, these verses are quoted several times in the New Testament. And one of those places is in Matthew 13 regarding the preaching of Christ. And Christ was preaching in parables. And the disciples came to the Lord and said, Lord, we, we don't understand this. You're preaching in parables and the people don't even understand. By the way, sometimes the reason we don't understand is not the preacher's fault. Christ was the master preacher and people were not understanding now, sometimes it can be the preacher's fault, but sometimes it's not. Christ, the master preacher, was preaching, and people didn't understand because he was preaching in parables. And the disciples said, most of you remember that passage, and the disciples said, why are you preaching in parables? And the Lord quoted this passage. In other words, people like to toy with truth. And if it's palatable to them, and they, you know, they'll respond. But if they don't like it, they want to kind of leapfrog down the road and find the things that they do like. And you can't do that with God. If you're building a building, you can't put that row of cement blocks on the top until you put those down there. You've got to start where God is starting. And because the people wouldn't respond, well, let's put it in terms of 
the way I heard someone put it one time. They put it this way, light resisted. Okay, light rejected results in light hidden. When people reject the light, God in judgment sometimes will hide the light from them. And so back here in Isaiah, this is what Isaiah was supposed to do. His preaching was designed, folks, to by God to hide the truth and harden the parts of these people. And even today, the preacher sometimes faces this kind of dilemma. The only recourse for people who reject the truth is to keep preaching the truth to them. People today in some of the contemporary preaching books just change the message a little bit. But when people who reject the truth, the fact is, folks, they just need the truth. You're going to have to keep giving it to them. However, listen, to do this, and this is kind of a scary thing if I can put it that way, to do this is to expose them yet again to the risk of rejecting the truth and thereby increasing the hardness of their heart. It's a fearful thing to stand in the pulpit in that sense. And yet a man must preach the truth. And folks, this tells us, number one, that God sometimes calls a man to this kind of ministry. Now, people repeatedly come to the preacher and say, Pastor, listen, we love you, but we don't understand what you're saying. Well, the place to begin is with your preaching and say, all right, what do I need to do? <laughs> maybe, maybe I ought to read some preaching books or talk to some pastors or get a little bit of feedback from a man who's in the ministry. And I mean, maybe it's my fault. Don't begin by saying, oh, they're Isaiah 6 people, you know. We're just not going to worry about them. <laughs> okay? Begin with yourself. Okay? Read Spurgeon's biography. You know, he had this guy. I think it was when he was preaching at the Crystal Palace when the place had burned. Anyway, they, they were rebuilding and or building a new one, and he preached there. And, and every Monday, he got a note from this guy criticizing his preaching. <laughs> every Monday. And Spurgeon used to say, he used to tell people, you know what, that guy's my greatest friend because he tells me my faults and now I'm able to correct them. So when people come, okay, take it on board. Don't, you know, don't just jettison it. But folks, the fact is that God does call some men to this kind of ministry. Now, all men experience this type of ministry from time to time. But for some men, their whole, listen, for some men, their whole ministry is this way. It's an Ezekiel just banging heads with people all the time. And folks, that was true for Isaiah. The people wouldn't respond. And finally, they had to go into exile. All the prophets just kept, you know, the big horns of Zedekiah just kept pushing on them and made no difference. By and large, the ministry of some men is a fruitless ministry because it was designed by God to be a ministry of judgment. And so people see and hear, but they don't, you know, they don't comprehend there's an inability to convert, and it's all by design. And I don't know if there's anyone like that here this morning. I mean, that could be true of Sunday school teachers, youth group workers, or whatever. I mean, sometimes, you know, we teach RE classes in the schools, and I, I do two or three, and my wife does a couple, and another one of the men in the church does a couple, another one of the men in the church does one. And really, sometimes they're at youth group on Friday night. I mean, I remember in the early 90s, you know, we'd get a very good youth group along, and the kids would really sit, and they were attentive. But if you've had any kind of youth ministry or any kind of ministry like that over the years, and you've been in it for a long time, you can gradually, you've gradually seen the marks of society influence, and, and, 
And now kids really aren't even, I mean, you can stand up there on Friday nights and you can tell them and, the, and their hair will blow in the breeze and you can turn blue in the face and stand on your head and do all kinds of grandstands and everything. And it means nothing to them. They just stand there and they just look at you. Huh. I wonder what Brother Tracy's doing up there now. That's kind of funny. <laughs> they really do. You can see it in their face. You can see it in kids in RE class that are just in grades two and three. My wife says that. She says, you know, this little boy here, he, he just, he has such a scornful, skeptical look on my face, his face. And maybe you're here as a Sunday school teacher and you face the same kind of thing. I mean, don't give up on kids. In prayer, you grieve for them, and you try to reach out to them. You try to befriend them. You try to help them. But sometimes, folks, there is a ministry of judgment that's there. Sometimes it can happen for a whole nation. Brother Nigel was talking the other day. Where are the young guys that want to be preachers in our country? Well, we pray according to the command of the Lord in Matthew 9, but what's happening? But this also tells us, secondly, folks, this reveals that a man cannot just choose, and this applies to all of us, this reveals that a man cannot just choose his response to God's message. Initially, he can choose to accept or reject it, but folks, there can come a point when there is, that's no longer possible. Like the hymn, right, hymn says in our hymnal, there's a line that is drawn, and people can draw a line, and they can cross it, and they just can't, you just can't toy with the truth. And that's true for even believing people. The message could be designed in such a way, God could actually design the message in such a way to harden the heart of someone who repeatedly rejects previous messages from God. And so here's the nature of this man's ministry. And you can imagine trying to minister to people like that and keep going with this. I mean, every Sunday afternoon showing up, Simeon did, for 12 years... And you try to help people and they lock the doors and you come and all the chairs you bought are thrown out there. And a man like that, boy, you really get discouraged. And what you, what, the thing that keeps you going, okay, you know how the devil comes. Oh, it's all your fault and this and that. So you, you begin to think, no, no, the Lord has cleansed my heart. And the devil says, ah, oh, yeah, but back when you were a kid and a teenager, remember what you used to do? And no, Now, wait a minute. The Lord cleansed my heart. That's under the blood. And then this sinful, and the thing that keeps you going in a sinful society like this is you see the holy God, and he's on his throne, and sin doesn't rule and reign. God's reigning. And he'll take care of all of this. Wow. Wow. You know, a man could put up with a ministry like this if it was just a little bit. But how long is Isaiah supposed to keep up this kind of ministry? Well, look what it says. Look in verse 11. Then said I, Lord, how long? How long have I got to stay at that church? How long do I have to stay in that ministry? How long do I need to keep ministering to those people? How long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate. Folks, what God is referring to here is the Babylonian captivity and the dispersion of the world that has continued right up until the present time. Isaiah, you are to preach until all of my judgment has taken place in the lives of these people. And this is talking about the destruction of their civilization and the deportation of that population. Just preach until all of that takes place. 
And God could send a man out to a place where most of his ministry will result in nothing but hardening. And you ask, does that actually happen today? Well, you just read church history. It's one of the benefits of reading some of the biographies. Just read of these things. The testimonies of such individuals and men who have gone to communities and they preached and they prayed and they've labored with people, but they face nothing but rejection. And sometimes the Lord sends a man to a hardened community and that man may ask, Lord, how long must I stay here? Isn't there somewhere else to which I can go where my message would be more receptive, more receive, where people would receive it? And with Isaiah, he is to carry out that kind of ministry and its effects until what you have in verses 11 and 12 take place. Huh. And yet there's an end to the story. Right? Verse 13. But. See the word but? Boy, don't miss that. But yet in it, shall be a tenth. And it shall return and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them. Do you see the word substance? In my Bible, I've got a number six next to substance. And it takes me to the margin where it says stock or stem. And what it's talking about is, for instance, a tree that's been cut down or a forest where the fire has gone through and destroyed the trees and the timber. But in the, in the, 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 the base that's been cut off, in the roots, there's life. And if you just keep going, life will come out of that stump. And we live in a high-set house, and across the fence, that when I stand next to it, I can't see over. But when I get up in our high-set house, I can look over the fence, and what I see in the back is the stump of a mango tree that's probably was well over 100 years old. I mean, it was a massive mango tree. And in Cyclone Yossi back in 2011, it blew part of it down, and they came and chopped it all up, and a couple years later, the owner came, and he just cut the whole thing down. But they left this massive stump. You'd never get your arms around it. And he just left it there. That was about three years ago. Now there's a mango tree growing that's taller than that ceiling. Where'd that come from? Ah, the substance was in the roots. It was in that stump. And Isaiah, you just keep ministering to these people. Yes, by and large, they're going to reject. But there's life down there, and I'm going to give you some fruit. And there are four kinds of soil. But there was the good soil. So you just keep ministering. Isaiah, just keep preaching. There's a remnant. And so later in the book, Isaiah writes these words, Come, now let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And there's a bright light for a dark world. And some people responded. Now what are we to make of all of that? In light of our series on the throne scenes where God reveals himself to men and teaches something about himself, what are we to make of this scene? Remember the scene? 
the sovereign, holy God sitting enthroned in all of his majesty and splendor. The seraphim singing about his holiness, surrounded by their smoke and the doorposts trembling at the sound of their voice. And then this confession of Isaiah, whereby God cleanses him and then commissions him for service. But that ministry is a hardening ministry. Not a hard ministry. It is a ministry designed to harden people. A hardening ministry with very little fruit. What are we to make of all of that? Well, I would think in the first place that we could draw this conclusion, folks. Isaiah's example of seeing our sovereign holy God on his throne is designed to encourage us in a chaotic world of sin. And I mentioned this a couple of times now, but folks, sin is not on the throne. God is. And we just need to be faithful and be encouraged and not give up the fight. And even now, the country is in a battle. Really, a life and death struggle. But we don't want to give up the fight. And by that, I'm not meaning we go down the middle of the street with sandwich signs and be belligerent. But we don't give up the fight. God is on the throne. God knows. And we know, folks, where all of this is leading. And that doesn't mean we just sit down and don't do anything. We have rights and we have voting power and we have things we can do. But, but we don't lose heart. We know what Revelation says. We know where this is going. 2 Timothy 3, these are perilous times, unthankful, unholy, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of self. Just read all of those descriptions. It's a muddy world out there. And a lot of people's chariot is stuck in the mud. But just be encouraged. And any time we come home, I mean, you're, I, I'm sure I'm like you are. You're like I am. You go down to the shopping center. You go down to that, you know, you go somewhere for the day to shop at the mall. And you come home and you just feel kind of dirty, like, just, like you're tainted. And it may need some cleansing, but be encouraged. God is on the throne. Sit down in your chair just for a moment while you, before you fix the evening meal and just in your mind's eye. Just think of Isaiah. Lord, I can see you. Encourage my heart tonight. I think it means this. Secondly, folks, this cleansing and commissioning of Isaiah for service teaches that no Christian should attempt a ministry of speaking for God when their lips are still unclean. No Christian should attempt a ministry of speaking for God when their lips are still unclean. must have been 35 years ago. My wife and I were staying with a pastor and his wife. They had a couple little children. And I was to speak that morning, so we went to the service that morning. It came time for the service to start, and there was no preacher, no pastor, and no pastor's wife. <laughs> Where did the pastor go? It's 11 o'clock. We're supposed to start the service. Nobody could find him. About 10 minutes later, they came in. Service went like normal. On the way home, the pastor just said, you probably wondered why my wife and I weren't there. He said, before I could leave the service, I had to go make some things right with her. I'd been unkind. No Christian should attempt to minister in a ministry of speaking for God when their lips are still unclean. Can't we take that from that passage? I think so. And number three, folks, in times when a man may experience a difficult ministry because of a sinful culture, 
Let that man find courage and encouragement by viewing on the throne that holy, sovereign God who called him into the ministry in the first place. Go back to that and encourage yourself. Don't become discouraged. Don't become despondent. Don't become cynical and sarcastic with people. And most of all, don't quit. There is a high, there is a God who's high and lifted up. And I say don't quit because many years ago, <clears throat> a long time ago when we began the Wellsprings ministry, I wrote an article, don't quit on Sunday, or don't quit on Monday. You know why I wrote that? I talked to a lot of preachers who wanted to quit on Monday. So I wrote it. About two years later, I got a note from a pastor in New Zealand. At that time, he was receiving the little publication. He wrote, well, I appreciated that. He says, about two months ago, it was Monday, and I was going to quit. He said, I've been working and working and working with people, and I've seen little fruit and haven't seen much going on. He says, I was just ready to throw in the towel. I read that, and I thought, well, I can't do that. See, there is a high and lofty one sitting on the throne, and he rules and reigns over all. So, in our kind of culture of sin, and when we are, have as unclean lips like the culture, okay, let's not just get down on the culture. All these sinful people out there. What in the, Isaiah said, you know what? I've got sinful lips too. Lord, cleanse me so I can minister to those same kinds of people and invite them to know the joy of the Lord when sins are forgiven. Encourage yourself with this God, the Holy Sovereign sitting upon his throne. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this afternoon. We pray that you'd minister your word to our heart, encourage us through it. Lord, help us with our own sinfulness constantly every day seek to live a separate, unique life apart from that of our society. And Lord, help us to be encouraged as we work with people and sin seems to be so strong in their life. Help us just to be faithful knowing that you rule and you reign. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.